Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm actually um, excited about the guest that we have. He has $3 billion in exit, if I understand it right, and we're going to learn a lot. So without further ado, Alex Mashinsky, welcome to the show today. No, great to be here. Thanks, Alejandro, for, for inviting me and a uh, uh, beautiful day here in New York. Where are you calling from? I'm, I'm actually in New York City as well, so uh, oh, okay. I'm right there with you. Beautiful day, and I'm tired of the cold and the snow, so hopefully we, we get into into sunnier days, I would say. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so you have, you, have this, uh, you have done this entrepreneurial thing multiple times. I mean, I, I mentioned to you that I got a little bit dizzy, uh, really uh, learning even farther about your story because you've just once being at it, it just takes a lot, being at it so many times like you have done. It's unbelievable. So how many companies have you built and exited so far? Uh, so Celsius is my eighth company. So uh, and all uh, the seven companies before that all, all had uh, exits. So uh, I tried retirement in the middle, though, and that didn't work too well. So <laughs> I got it. I got it. So how did you get the entrepreneurial bug, Alex? I think you're born with it. I don't think you get it. It's... Um, you know, there are people who are doers and there are people who are just dreamers or uh, people who just think about things. I I don't think about things too much. I jump in and uh, try to do things. And uh, a lot of my uh, companies are kind of the same theme of basically disrupting this or that industry and trying to make a world a better place, you know? Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So I understand that your first rodeo was with Arbinet. So is that right? First in the U.S., yeah, I, I had like little startups uh, when I was in Israel, like before I went to the military, I had all kind of like little uh, when I was in my teens, but the real, real big company, like my first big kind of uh, uh, success was Arbinet, yes. Got it. So I guess before you got started with Arbinet, because I think that the military and then also these uh, little ideas or, or projects that you were doing, I'm sure that they shaped you quite a bit. So what did you learn from from that experience there in Israel before you got here? Yes, yeah, so I'm an immigrant. I, my, my, I was actually born in the, in the Ukraine back when it was still the USSR. You know, it was part of the Russian, uh, uh, this uh, Soviet Union. Yeah. And my my parents immigrated to Israel in 72, and, and uh, so I spent 16 years in Israel. 
And really, it was like a culture shock because you went from a communist country to a socialist country from from uh, a different language, different environment. Uh, Israel is really Israel is people from over a hundred different countries, so it was really uh, like a melting uh, pot of of different cultures and and it was a great way of growing up and trying to understand the world and uh, then again, being in the military, I was, I was deployed uh, in Lebanon for a while, and uh, so I've been in the front lines. I've a few scars on my body to prove it, wow. and uh, really kind of seeing life and death. Uh, so after after you've been in these situations, uh, breathing every day is is like a miracle, you know. So uh, you appreciate every day you're alive. I hear you, and you know, I I actually have experienced that myself. You know, when you have either a relative or someone or even yourself, like you said, in life or this situations, I think that you become more grateful of things that you did not know were, you know, you were supposed to be grateful for. Is it, did you, did you get the same thing? Definitely. I think, you know, like there's two types of happy people. I think the, the people in, uh, uh, or there was a survey done all over the world. And, and I think, uh, uh, what's the country that came up? Number one, it was, uh, oh my God. <laughs> I blacked out. They're uh, right. They're north of uh, Belgium. What is that called? Uh, what, what, anyway, was, what, what was the survey? The country. The 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 survey. Who are the most happy people on the planet? Oh, and and yeah. and these people came up first because their expectations are very low. Uh, right. You know, so they're always happy when your expectations are low. Are, are you're happy? But but the other extreme of that is you're happy because. Because you know that uh, the world could be such a bad and hard place that you appreciate everything, even the little things. And and so I'm on the second camp, you know, and on the camp that has high expectations, but appreciates the, the you know, the little uh, gifts that we get every day. Oh, I love it. I hear you. I hear you. And and here's the thing. I'm I'm also you know a foreigner, so I came I came from Spain here to the U.S. So. I, I was actually interested now in, in hearing, like, what was the process of coming here before, you know, you actually went at it with, with Arbinet? Well, that's a funny story because uh, people would think, oh, you know, he was a te tech guy. So he came to the U.S. as a tech guy. And funny enough, I actually I wanted to work in Europe. And, and uh, so I got when I went to the travel agent and they said, uh, um, would ask me where you're going. I said, I'm going to Paris. And they said, you know, it's cheaper to buy a ticket to US with a stop in Paris. And so I had the, always had that stop. I had that extra ticket in the first year that I was in, in Europe kind of trying to make it work. And I kept looking at the ticket and said, you know what, maybe I should go to America, test it out. And so I just, I went here, I, I planned to come here for a few days, just then go back. I had like maybe a hundred dollars in my pocket. Right. And and I landed here, and I took the bus to 42nd Street, and I looked around, and I was like, I'm never going back anywhere. I'm staying right here. <laughs> what so, year was this? What year was this? Uh, 1988. Oh. So it. it was definitely not a master plan. I, I, I thought I'm going to end up in London or Paris or one of these places. Uh, I definitely didn't think I'm going to. You know, I'm in New York for over 30 years now, and, and uh I love this place. I leave the city for a few days and I get uh, my hands start shaking, you know, so uh, I, I hear you. It's just the, the speed, you know, when, once you're yes. used to it, it's, it's just yes. tough to, 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 to leave it. And, so, and, 
and 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 one more important thing like in europe you go in and you say i want to do this i want to do that and people look at you like what's your name where did you go to school (laughs) and they go they kick you out of the office and in new york you come in and it doesn't matter if you're a russian israeli immigrant you come in and you say i want to do this big idea and people scratch their head and say wow this is a big idea let's do it together so so this was like this place was made for me like uh, it was just like uh, i i felt like i could finally breathe you know so it was just really uh i found my environment and and uh again most of us are are not lucky enough to find the one thing we do very very well and for me just uh, being able to kind of land on the right place at the right time and and be an entrepreneur was just uh, heaven so let's say your first uh, contact or your your big contact uh, with with heaven, not a meaningful, in a meaningful way. Uh, that was Arbinet. So how did you come up with this idea? So so I had this little company that made voicemail systems. Uh, I was the first guy, one of the first guys to build a, a PC-based voicemail system. Until then, companies like uh, Octel and VMX uh, used to run on mini computers with proprietary hardware. And they cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I basically made the same machine for like $10,000. And, and uh, so we were selling that to everybody. And, and then I realized I started playing with the internet, dial-up BBSs and things like that and email. And I realized that voice could run on the internet, right? And, and I started going around telling people, look, voice is going to be an application on the internet. And people are like, no, you don't get it. The entire internet is an application on the voice network. You have to use a modem to dial into the internet. I'm like, no, no, that's today. But 10 years from now, 20 years from now, it will be always on and you'll be able to have gigabits of speed and, and the voice will just be an application. So it took me a while to convince people. I built actually a, a, a prototype of the devices because I already had the voicemail system. And I just added some voice boards and, and T1 connectivity and things like that. And I, I built the first voice over IP gateway. And uh, that, that was then, you know, then created Arbinet became a public company, had a billion seven valuation. We had 4,000 carriers all over the world using us. We ran over 10% of all the world's traffic. And uh, today, three and a half billion people use voice over IP for free because uh, we basically decided that charging $3 a minute was just not a viable, sustainable business model. Lots of phone companies used to charge us to call overseas. So, So here we are. So... So that was sure. uh, that was easy, you know. I'm saying it's uh, it was like staring at you in the face. All you had to do is is execute. For sure. And how how did you capitalize this business? Because I mean, we're talking about the '90s, so it was a different way of doing fundraising. Uh, well, I I had 12 VCs that invested money in us. We were raised over 300 million dollars. Uh, so I did like I don't know six or seven different rounds of funding. And eventually, the co- in 2004, the company went public, ARBX. It was a symbol on NASDAQ. And it was the best IPO of 2004. And uh, that was a very powerful year. Google went public that year, a few other big companies. So being number one that year was not easy, believe me. Yeah. Uh, but we were the hottest thing. We were the, you know, the creators of VoIP. And obviously, VoIP still is one of the hottest, uh, the largest distributed application on the internet. Got it. And the company was uh, ended up being acquired, no, by Primus uh, Telecommunications. Yeah. Yes, it merged with Primus. It's still around. Right now, it's called uh, uh, HC2, and the symbol is HCHC. 
So the company's still around. It just they changed names and changed owners. And, you know, I was on the board. I was off the board. Uh, so, but uh, I'm no longer involved with them. And and were you involved at the time of the transaction happening? Yeah, of course. I, I was, again, I was CEO for the first uh, five or six years. Uh, I helped raise all the money. I, I helped take the company public. Uh, and I was on the board until 2009, I think. Yeah. So so I was involved for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, started the company in 1994. So, you know, nice. long time. Really so. cool. And, and. You know, one thing that I was really impressed by is that you did so many things at the same time. I mean, like I was I was like getting lost on the amount of things that you were involved with, because during the same period, for example, you also did Comgates. Is that right? Yes. So, so Comgates was really like an offshoot of Arbanet. So basically Comgates created the soft switches, the software that needs to connect networks to each other, VoIP networks together. OK, <laughs> so that was technology that we could not really uh, deploy inside Arbanet. So we decided to spin off a separate company that had its own separate of funding. It raised over 20 million and it eventually got sold to a public company as well. And it's part of the uh, gate protocols that are used today. So when you like, right, what we're talking on right now is, is a VoIP conversation, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and even if we're in New York, your gateway and my gateway may not be the same company. And you need someone to basically enable the the traffic to clear between all these different networks, and that's what Comgate uh, created. So, what what triggered the the M and A process here? And we built a great product. Uh, uh, Telco wanted to be in the VoIP business, and uh, you know, we sold the company. I mean, that's uh, that's just what happens, you know. So, and obviously, those. Uh, Overall, there were many different uh, companies in the space. You know, there was consolidation of uh, like Cisco bought a company and Telco got a company. And uh, so there were definitely uh, four or five solutions out there. And uh, you had to team up with someone to be part of a bigger uh, solution because uh, phone companies don't buy equipment from small companies. They usually want to big work with bigger companies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then at the same time, again, you had Elematics. So what, what was this company about? So Elematics was really an idea way ahead of its time. I mean, the Elematics uh, started in New York, but it actually scaled up in, um, in Beaverton, Oregon. So we had, I think, like 60 or 70 people in Beaverton, right next to the Intel um, offices. And... Uh, um, we created uh, what's called NNI or network to network interface. So, so if you have, um, if you feel familiar with computer virtualization and virtual machines and, and being able to extract and network topology and all that stuff and put it on at, at, at the higher layers, uh, which is what's happening today on Amazon cloud and Google and so on. So before any of these things existed, uh, you know, Elematics was like one of the first companies to come out and show how it can be done. And we actually won the Verizon contract to to deploy uh, network virtualization across their fiber optic network. So, so we were like really one of the first hot startups in the space. Warburg Pincus did two rounds of funding, put like I think twenty three or twenty four million dollars into the company, and and um, again pioneer uh, in the space. You know, today 
everybody's using that service. They don't even know they're using it because it's embedded into the Microsoft Cloud and the Amazon Cloud and, and so on. But back then, the whole idea that you can basically have a dumb network and extract everything into virtual machines uh, was a very, very new idea. Got it. Got it. And, and here you were acting as chairman for the most part. So I was a founder. I was a CEO for the first year. And uh, when we decided to move the company to Beaverton, I did not move with the company. I, I stayed as chairman. And uh, Scott Cook and a few other people, uh, um, Clive Cook. Scott Cook is the CEO of Apple. Right. Clive Cook, uh, who's, who was my co-founder, uh, ended up running the company day to day. So what, what, what ended up happening with Elematics? So also the company was sold. Uh, it was an exit, uh, I think, 2004. I don't remember the exact year, but I think it was 2004. Got and um, the technology is still being used. I mean, we had like 50 or 60 patents on the space. And um, just like VoIP, the technology is used by everybody. Um, so it's, uh, it's a standard now. It's a global standard. So was this acquisition similar to... To the to the one that we were talking about of Comgates or or how how did this happen? So Elematics had no connection to Arbonet. It was not a spin off of Arbonet. That was a completely separate uh, company, separate idea, and uh, so we started that from scratch. That that, that was actually like uh, just a, um, uh, an idea that I had that turned into a startup. So just like Arbonet was a startup. Got it. Got it. Really cool. And and who ended up acquiring the company? Uh, wow, I can't remember, but there's a press announcement somewhere. But so, was it a public company like like the the eh, other one or or no? No, I don't think it was a public okay. company, but it was one of the players in the space. Got it. And obviously, you have reasons to to not remember because you were doing also transit wireless eh, at this time as well. <laughs> <laughs> when yeah, when, so when did you sleep, Alex? When did you sleep? Oh my God! Well, when you see an opportunity, you're gonna jump <laughs> on it. You know, like uh, wow. So yeah, so my my best friend. And died in September 11th uh, yeah. during the collapse. He was at the one of the towers, and uh, and I wanted to do something uh, in the city to kind of commemorate uh, and help the city with with what happened. And one of the things that really was a huge problem during September 11th was the fact that you know millions of people use the subway every day, but they don't have connectivity. Well, the, the subway system is over 100 years old. And the minute you go underground, uh, you are disconnected from the world. There was nothing there because yeah. it's, uh, you know, New York is, uh, it's uh, granite. I mean, not, no signal goes through granite, you know? Yeah. So, so, uh, so I came to the, you know, I was naive. I went to the MTA in 2001, 2002, I think I went to them. I said, you know, we should put wireless in the subways, which is there's, I used, I used wireless in the subways in, in Paris. In, in the 80s, you know, like, uh, and this, this is like 2002, and, yeah. and there was nothing in New York, and I was just going crazy. I was like, I couldn't understand why this big city, the largest underground system in the world, would not have wireless service. Yeah. And then I realized that it had nothing to do with technology or anything else. It was just uh, business. So just like a gym membership doesn't want you to use the gym every day, they, 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 they're okay with you never coming. The phone company, because they charge you monthly fee, flat fee, they would love for you to just not use the service as much as possible. And if you are in the subway one or two hours a day, they love it. They don't. They don't. They don't want to spend hundreds of millions of dollars building wireless in the subways. So, and and the city could care less. 
And the MTA uh, didn't really, uh, they were like worried about uh, terrorist attacks and things like that instead of worrying about safety of the people using the system. Yeah. So, so I had to fight with them for several years. And then they, they had me uh, pay for a survey. We, we surveyed like thousands of people. And of course, almost everybody said, of course, we want service. And then they opened it to bid. They opened it to everybody. So 400 different companies applied for something that I fought for five years to, to create. And and uh, there were only like four finalists out of the 400. And basically it was me and, and my partners. I've partnered with another company against the four carriers. The large four carriers got together, created their own consortium, and they, they bid against uh, Transit Wireless, which was my company, you know? Right. And, and, and they were sure, they were sure that, that uh, the MTA would never give this project to a little company that, that no one heard of before called Transit Wireless. Yeah. So, so it was funny because I was sitting at home and my wife throws the paper on my lap. I think it was a Saturday or a Sunday. And it says on the paper, uh, Transit Wireless wins the award from, from the MTA, blah, blah, blah. Wow. And she looks at me and she says, uh, I don't know if you're the smartest guy or the dumbest guy. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Look, I won the project. And she's like, just read the article. And it says in the article, you know. Transit Wireless agrees to pay the MTA $46 million for the license. And the four carriers who came second agreed to pay $4. Oh. So she says to me, do you think you overpaid? <laughs> yeah. So that was, so it wasn't clear that we got something of value. When we agreed to pay so much money for, to build this, it also yeah. cost $300 million to build it. And now it's a big success, but back then it looked like a big mistake. Got it. Got it. And and what was the outcome? What ended up being the outcome of the business? Well, 8 million people use it every day today. I mean, I'm sure you were you in the subways today. Yes. Yeah. So you got five bars everywhere, right? So, <laughs> so you're responsible. You're responsible for we, that. We give you the five bars and we make the phone company pay for it. Do you like okay. that? Well, whenever those five bars go to four, I will be calling you to complain, Alex. I know uh, who to call. <laughs> well, I'll give you I'll give you a secret because even in the subway, everybody uh, tries to use their Wi-Fi. But if they shut down the Wi-Fi, the five, the 4G is so fast, yeah. it's faster than the Wi-Fi. So the secret to all your listeners, when you're in New York, shut down your Wi-Fi when you're in the subway and you'll be blazing through the Internet. I love it. I love it. And I actually have uh, have experienced that. So So really, really cool. So I saw that. You were involved with the business up until 2016, right? I'm still a shareholder. Uh, we okay. sold the half of the company, I think, to a partner. But I'm still a shareholder, and we're still building things. We're adding things. Like right now, we're working with the MTA to put more fiber uh, to enable uh, all the signs and enable for you to know when the train is coming and all kind of other improvements. All of that is using the Transit Wireless Network. Uh, so all these new innovations and new things that you're seeing, yeah. a, a lot of that is riding on the, on the same network we built for the wireless. Got it. So I also saw that during this time again, you did another another uh, initiative, and that was Governing Dynamics, which uh, basically was kind of like um, like a fund. Is that right? Yeah. So so you know I had a few exits, I had a little bit of money, and I said, okay, let me try to help other entrepreneurs. Let's create a fund that is just dedicated on, on early stage innovation, right? Disruptive ideas, people that kind of, like me, come with $100 and, and have big dreams and, and I can help them navigate 
to become uh, successful entrepreneurs. And uh, we, so we've made a bunch of investments and started a few companies through Governing Dynamics. Got it. And how, like, what kind of companies say, could you, could you mention that perhaps some of the listeners might recognize on those investments? So, so Groundlink is one of them. For example, Groundlink uh, was Uber before Uber. We started it in, uh, I think, 2005. And uh, we were the first app in the App Store that you could download and order a car on demand. And uh, when, when, when Uber was just in San Francisco, we were already in over 5,000 airports, uh, but we did not subsidize the prices, right? What Uber did that we didn't do is that they uh, basically, uh, they lose money on every ride and they hope to make it on, on, on volume. <laughs> yeah. You know, they lost every year, they lose $2 billion because they subsidize all the rides. So, so even though we invented it, the idea, and, and like in New York, we had, uh, uh, you know, at the peak, uh, Arbonne, uh, Arbonne, Groundlink had like over a thousand drivers and uh, we were uh, providing service. I'm sure a lot of your listeners used Groundlink, both in corporate accounts and retail accounts and before Uber. And they know exactly what I'm talking about. But you could also use us in hundreds and hundreds of cities all over the world. Um, but we just did not subsidize the ride. We didn't think that losing money on every ride was such a brilliant idea. So. Right. Uh, But I raised like uh, $35 million for the company and uh, it was profitable. And uh, again, uh, when, when I actually, the... Alex, I saw that for a uh, Groundlink, you actually did quite a pretty interesting Series A round. I mean, it was like a big, big A round, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, but the problem was that my VCs, my investors uh, did not, when I, uh, I remember that board meeting like today, I said to them, look, uh, We have to uh, do what Uber is doing. We have to subsidize the rides. Otherwise, it will just come and eat our lunch. And uh, my investors were like, no, you're, you already have $70 million in revenues. You're profitable. Just keep growing. You're growing 30%, 40% per year. You don't need anything more than that. And, uh, and I left. I, 2010, uh, end of 2010, I left the company because I felt that that, that was my small my most miserable and painful experience because it's like seeing your child being molested you know yeah. you you ha you have the idea you're there ahead of everybody else you know what they're doing wrong and there's nothing you can do because your investors uh, own the majority of the company and they will just don't want they don't agree with you they want to go in a different direction and there's nothing you can do so um so i left the board it was better not to look than to see uh them just completely ruin Uh, Groundlink and because and, uh, Groundlink was your your real next uh, I would say experience again as as a founder and CEO because on the other initiatives you were more like at a board level a strategic uh, you know, all, type of all, no? these, all, all these companies I'm the founder without exception yeah. all all eight companies I'm the founder so it's not uh, it's not that uh, I was just an investor the issue was more that I I was running this company day to day. And I wanted to turn left, and my investors wanted to turn right. In almost all the other companies I ran, we were always, me and the investors were almost always aligned. This was like the one time where uh, we were completely in opposite uh, direction, and, and uh, they were wrong. You know, they, yeah. they, they, they know it. They lost. Look, Uber is the fastest value creation in history. It's the company that got to $60 billion dollars faster than any other company. And we were them. We were there before them, right? So we could have been exactly what they became if we just uh, did not screw up and did not uh, 
be so greedy and try to make so much money, right? They went for adoption, yeah. getting as many users as possible, and my investors went for making money. Yeah, yeah. No, but what I meant to say is that this was the next company where you would be the CEO, not only the founder, but then also the um, the CEO on a day to day, like you were uh, mentioning. So yeah, uh, I ran it yeah. for five years as CEO, and then uh, then I left. Got it. Got it. And and what did you learn from uh, from from this experience? Because I always tell founders that divorcing your investor is tougher to the to, tougher than divorcing your wife or husband. So you need to be very careful with who you get in bed with. But what what did you learn from from this experience and having investors that there was complete misalignment? Well, it was very painful both uh, because you were right. Uh, uh, you know, I, I was right about the decisions, but I could not convince my team. So I was right and I was wrong at the same time. And, uh, um, uh, you know, for me, it was just, you know, I was the successful guy. I was already had five or six uh, startups. The CEO of Uber, um, uh, most people don't know, but the CEO of Uber uh, lost all the money for all of his investors. 10 times in a row. He had 10 startups and he couldn't have a single exit before he joined Uber. So he was a complete failure. And here he comes, he steals my idea. He goes to uh, uh, Benchmark, the same investor I went to, and he sits with them and he convinces them to give him the money and not me. I met with Bill Gurley a week before he funded Uber, right? He was the A round in Uber. He gave the Uber all the money. So so that, that was just completely painful. That's like being... The analogy here is that I will be the world's best marathon runner, and I'm like way ahead of everybody else, and and I fumble and I fall right before the finish line, and somebody else finishes right. It just it just it was very very painful for me. I went through uh, almost depression, right? Like just basically, yeah. how could this happen to me? And yeah. um, and it took me a while to get out of it. It wasn't easy. It was basically like I had to go and and di dissect and. And break everything down to really look into the how and why and what could have done better, and really rebuild myself uh, to do to do you know better things in the future. Because uh, you have to learn from your mistakes, and and even even again being in the military and everything else, you think you're solid and you can take anything. When something like this hits you, you're uh, you're knocked out. You know, there's no there's no getting up after that. Yeah, so it, yeah. it was uh, it took a while. It took like probably a year or two years to to really get out of it got it got it got it and then after this uh, you go and become the uh, CEO of Insigo which had about 200 employees at the time where you joined but what a what an interesting shift for you know from building companies from nothing to to joining and leading something that is a little bit more mature yeah so the, uh, so back then uh, this was called Novatel wireless they changed the name to Insigo but so Novatel was a public company. They were looking for a turnaround CEO. Uh, they're based in San Diego, and uh, they asked me to come in. In the beginning, they just asked me to join the board, uh, just as an outside director, and I joined the board, and then they asked me to come in as CEO. And uh, so I just uh, came in, did turnaround, and uh, I think we more than doubled the revenues and uh, went from 200 employees to over uh, 1,300 employees when I left. Wow! So grew the company very, very quickly, and and handed it off to the next CEO. And my wife looked at me after two years of commuting to San Diego from New York. My wife looked at me and said, uh, "You know, I, I have 
to pick and choose. What are you going to do? Are you going to live there or are you going to live here? Because I'm not moving. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and what a commute. I mean, it's quite a long commute, eh, Alex. Yes, yes. It's a, it's the longest commute you can, you can even uh, create. Like San Diego yeah. is the south, most southern city, you know? So it's like, anyway, so yes, I, uh, I definitely, uh, uh, my commute is much shorter now. Got it, got it. And, and just out of curiosity, so for example, like when doing a turnaround like this, what are the pieces that, you know, in, in this case or in any case, you know, like you would look at in order to really, you know, make a solid decision on how you can turn around something? Is it like on the number of employees, on the business model? So where do you look? So Nomatel Wireless was a great company. Believe me, they, they had a great brand, the MiFi devices. They, a lot of people have these devices. Uh, the company sold over 100 million of these all over the world. So they have a very solid base of customers and users and a very solid brand. And really, the company just lost its way. It, it, and so this was more about uh, cutting off the things that the company did not do well and doubling down on the things that the company did well. And for example, I don't know if you saw all these ads for Verizon bragging about their 5G and so on. So the five, first 5G device made uh, and launched on the Verizon network was the Novatel Wireless uh, slash Insigo device. So, uh, so Novatel is a world leader in, in wireless connectivity. And, and uh, again, I'm a technical guy. So for me, it was very easy to come in and shut down the things that were not uh, working and double down on the things that are working. And they're just continuing to do it now. You know, so I also raised, uh, I think it was three, in three days, I raised $120 million. I brought some outside investors. And uh, so I recapitalized the company. Uh, so we went from uh, uh, vendors and customers worrying about uh, the future of the company to being a very stable company that uh, that grew fast and and uh, you know when you stabilize a company then you're everybody wants to work with you again. So yeah. it wasn't anything amazing. It wasn't like sitting there and inventing voice of IP or coming up with uh, the future of ground transportation or doing uh, you know Excelsius Network. Those are fundamental you know kind of reinventing a whole business right disrupting a whole industry uh, with a new idea versus yeah. here this was more about you know the 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 caboose was off the track and we put it back on the tracks and we filled up the gasoline and, and it was running again yeah. yeah and and talking about changing the world after you leave insigo you started your most recent uh, company the celsius network so tell us a bit about celsius network so Celsius is bigger than anything I've done, you know, and and the reason for that is that that the um, we are going through a huge disruption, a huge uh, a reinvention that most people are not even realize that's happening, you know. So it's like imagine a tsunami that's washing us, and no one realizes that they're even getting wet, right? And and this this tsunami is decentralization, and and when you say decentralization, people are like what what does that mean, right? <laughs> I don't even know what that word means, but Basically, today, the entire world, all the businesses that exist, everything that runs in the world is based on centralized companies. So the most powerful companies in the world, Amazon and Apple and Google and Facebook and so on, they're all centralized companies. The guy at the top uh, controls a centralized set of computers, and those computers run the lives of hundreds of millions of people. And we're going from that to what the Internet was supposed to be from the beginning, a decentralized environment where no one is in charge and no one is in control right 
And the reason for that is, is that basically most people don't want, they're not happy with what's happening today. They're not, again, 90% of the people in the United States, for example, have the same wealth as 33,000 Americans, 0.1% of all Americans, right? So that's just not a sustainable business model. And, and uh, so this decentralization is a movement that you can see all over the world. And through that movement, you have things like cryptocurrencies and blockchain and, and, and other things, open ledgers, that are driving new invention of systems. So the Bitcoin, for example, is, an, is one example of these things that are happening. And the Bitcoin is coming and saying, look, your bank is really stealing from you every day. They take your deposit. They lend it to your neighbors, right? Your money, they lend it to your neighbor. They pay you almost nothing, 0%, 1%, and they charge your neighbor 25%. So they make almost all the money on your money, and you're not complaining about it, right? Well, yeah. guess what? With, with Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, you can lend the money to your neighbor through a decentralized system. You can take the broker in the middle, and you can keep most of the profit. So all Celsius is doing is building a, a system that acts in the best interest of the users, of the depositor, not in the best interest of the shareholder. So the bank, what does the bank do? The bank takes all this profit that we just talked about and gives it to their shareholders, not to their depositors. And Celsius says, wait, 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 not so fast. We want to do exactly the same thing, but we're going to take the profit and give it back to the depositor. So give the power back to the people. So that is a very big idea. It's a very simple idea, too. And uh, we launched the service in uh, uh, the company launched in 2017. We launched the service in 2018. We did an ICO. We raised uh, close to $50 million. And we're using all that money to build this for the community and act in the best interest of the community. Got it. So, and what was the process of doing an ICO? So, so we did we did almost the opposite of what everybody else does, right? So the traditional ICO is you run around, you take money from anyone who will give you money, mostly in the beginning you go to big investors and then you go to retail and then you immediately list on some exchange and you sell your coins as fast as you can and, and you hope for the best. And the problem with that model is that the people that took the coins early, they buy them cheaply and then they dump it on the people that come late. Right, so that's not a sustainable business model. Yeah. We wanted to build a community, right? Our model was we're building a service for the community. Let's go to as many people as possible. We're not going to go to big investors or VCs. It's the opposite of what I've done my entire life, right? Not a, we don't have a single VC in our in Celsius Network, right. not a single uh, private equity guy or institution or anything like that. We had fifteen thousand people register and say hey, I want you to build a service. I want to participate in this. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of money. And when I uh, when you launch, I want to have some utility. I want to be just like in the subway, right? Yeah. I want to be able to use my token to ride the subway. I don't want to own the subway. I just want to have the service run that costs not a lot of money and have wireless service in it and do what's in my best interest, right? So yeah. this is a similar thing. It's just doing it with your bank and your... It's doing it with your money instead of doing it with your transportation. So and, what do you so, think? Go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm just saying. We so we did not do. Uh, we did not list on an exchange. We did not dump all the tokens. We didn't do all the things that other people do. And we have uh, over fifty thousand downloads. We've 
close to $100 million in deposits, meaning people gave us $100 million worth of coins. And we do two very simple things. We pay interest. We pay up to 7% interest on deposits. So try to get that from your bank, right? And we take that money and we lend it out to most people. We, we don't do credit check. We don't do background check. We don't do income check because we lend only against assets. And we only charge 9%. So we, we charge 9 we give 7 back to the community. You know, it's uh, one thing that I that I wanted to get your thoughts on, uh, Alex, is, you know, we, you've been talking about banks, and I've also, uh, I have seen the transition of, uh, for example, Jamie Dimon from, from JP Morgan just talking not so well about Bitcoin, and then all of a sudden having JP Morgan coming out with their own their own crypto, no? Their own thing. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, first, I know uh, Jamie. He was in my YPO chapter here in New York. So I met him, shook hands with him a few times. I know Christine Moy, who works for him, who is running the effort the, over the coins that they launched. And I can tell you that, uh, first, it's not a Bitcoin. It's not a cryptocurrency. What they did, hush, hush, no one knows, but I'll tell you a secret. You, you have an exclusive on this. They copied <laughs> Ethereum. Okay. They copied the whole Ethereum software. They called it something else. They're calling it Corum. But if you look at the code, you'll see that it's all Ethereum source code. They didn't create anything new. And they deployed it inside their bank. It's a private uh, network. It's not a public blockchain. It's just a private network, like an intra intranet. You familiar with intranets? Back in the 90s, uh, GE and all the big companies thought that intranet is going to be the big thing, not the internet. So, so here JP Morgan is doing exactly what IBM and all the big boys tried to do in the 80s and 90s to kill the internet, right? They said, oh, we're going to create our own version of this. We're going to call it something else and everybody's going to come and use us. Yeah. Well, not so fast, you know? So Jamie hates crypto. Jamie hates Bitcoin. Jamie hates anything that will disrupt his bank. His bank makes $20 billion in profit every quarter. Where do you think they make that profit? They steal it from you and from me with exactly what I described before, <laughs> right? Right, so, yeah. So the, the last thing he wants is something that will disrupt. You know, it reminds me, the phone companies that used to charge $3 a minute. I remember yeah. AT&T, when I showed them VoIP, they looked at me and said, Alex, we love what you created. Just don't give it to everybody, you know? We don't want everybody to know how to make phone calls for free, right? Me and you, Alejandro, are talking for free right now, you know? Yeah. And you, you could be in Madrid, you could be in Tel Aviv, you could be anywhere, and this call would still be free. And this is what I'm promising everybody is listening that we can do with banking. We're going to go from VoIP to MoIP. MoIP is money over IP, and it's going to work exactly like VoIP without anybody in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, and Drop I love the it. Mic. I Drop love the it. Mic. <laughs> That's it. That's it. So let me let me ask you this, uh, Alex. So you've been a founder multiple times. So you've done like uh, you know 120 VC investments, 34 patents, a billion dollars raised in funds, three billion in exits. So I have to ask you the question that I always ask. This is the biggest target. fight of my life, though. I hear you. I hear this you. This is I the biggest fight of my life. Celsius Network. I'm taking on the biggest guys, the most powerful guys in Washington. They're the banks, the most successful, the most, the richest people, the guys that make the most money, that give the most to politicians. This is, fighting the phone companies was just the warm up. 
this is the real fight. <laughs> wow. Well, I can't wait to see, you know, like uh, how this fight is going to go. I mean, I, I wanted to ask you here, like, where do you see Celsius, let's say in five to 10 years from now? Look, the bar is very high for me, right? Like I said, three and a half billion people use VoIP. So, so if I, if I brought a hundred million people to Celsius, that would, people would laugh at me. You know, they'll be like, oh, Alex, come on. You went from three billion to a hundred million. Seriously, that's where you stopped. So my my aspiration here is that I die and and Celsius Network again. This is for the people, okay? It's not for me. I don't need the money. I already made a lot of money. This is this is so people who have very low income can take their savings that they work so hard on and put it in a real account that earns them money. So they money their money makes money instead of them working for the right. Because that's how the rich people are rich. Their money works for them. They don't work for the money. Do you yeah. think Donald Trump working really hard? You know, his money works for him. He, he's in real estate and in all the other stuff that he's doing. And he barely pays any taxes because he defers his taxes on real estate and so on. He borrows against it. So we took all the secrets of how the rich people stay rich. And we gave it to people without them even having to understand how it works. I bet you, if I asked you right now, how voice of RP works. How can we talk to each other like this? You wouldn't be able to explain to me, but it works, right? So yeah. the same way, MoIP can work the same way. If we created a system that acts in the best interest of the people, in the protocol, in the hardware, in the software, everything was already acting in your best interest as far as your money is concerned, then you would be making money on your money. So what we're building is, is the system that allow your money to be safe and to act in your best interest, to work for you. And that's what the opposite of what banks and other institutions try to do, because if they give you all of that, then they can't make the profit, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so the, bank, the banks hate me, just like the phone companies hate me. Uh, <laughs> they, Got it. You know, that's fine. I'm willing to take that any day. Well, if I ever go to a bank, I will uh, make sure that uh, you and I, we're not uh, going together, so, uh, so that I get whatever I want. But anyhow... I, I I say bad things about banks every day. <laughs> so, Alex, uh, they, all these companies that you've done, if you could go back to the past and give yourself one piece of advice, let's say if you, if you had the chance to go back to that moment where you were about to launch your first business, knowing what you know now, what would that piece of advice be? Well, so you have to be bold. You have to be... Uh, allow yourself to succeed, right? You, 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 you. A lot of people doubt themselves. A lot of people are like, "Well, I'm not sure I can do it, and it's so hard, and where am I going to get the money?" And, 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 you know, all of us. I think every person on this planet is the best in the world at something. The problem is they cannot, they do not find out what they are the best in the world at. So they never get to do that thing. They never become the champion, right? But they are. They already are. They just don't know it. So. The, the most difficult thing in life for each person is to find what they are the best in the world at. And unfortunately, they don't teach you that in school. They don't teach you that in college. And most of us, even in our 60s or 70s, still don't know what we're really good at, right? Some of us get lucky and we become a star or athlete or a star a singer because those are easy things to find out, right? But if it's, it's a, if it's a talent that you have deep inside of you, like for me, it's very easy to see the future. I can I can see that a technology or something will become prevalent and everybody will gonna use it and then I just go and do it, right? But 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 for most people, it's very hard to find out what it is. So the, the best advice, like for me, 
even with voice of IP, like uh, I could have been uh, Microsoft or Cisco, or whatever. We, we, even though uh, Arbonnet became a very successful company, it did not become the dominant company in our space. And other people jumped in and stole all of our ideas and, and so on. So for me, my advice to myself was go even faster, go even bolder and bring bigger partners quicker to dominate the industry. Right. And, and, so those are things that I'm trying to do now with Celsius. That's an example of how, how we are, you know, we did, we launched six months ago, right? We launched in, in July. We did over 630 million in loans in the first six months. That's more than 10 times more than all of our competitors put together. And some of our competitors are three and four years old. Yeah. Right. So why? Because we went bold. We went hard. We, we, we gave everything back to the community. And people looked at it and said, wow, Celsius is giving me much more. I'm taking all my money from here and I'm putting it over there. So, so, and, and we're doing great, again, for the people. This is for the people. We're delivering exactly what we promised to give them. So I think it, it's not like it's one secret, right? There's a lot of little things that need to go right. And some people do it magically, like Mark Zuckerberg, right? He got lucky and he did everything right the first time. And all of his competitors, like MySpace and everybody else, made every mistake possible, right? Because sometimes your competitors also have to make every mistake for you to be successful. Yeah. So, so it's not just about you. It's about the environment, being at the right place. And many times you're either too early or too late, or you're in the wrong space, so it's not for you, and you just fail. But that doesn't mean anything. That does not mean that the next time you're not going to become, like I said, the CEO of Uber you can look it up. It's public information. Failed 10 times in a row. Lost all the money for all of his investors. And then he becomes the CEO of the most, the fastest growing company in history. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, lo I love the advice, eh, Alex. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? I answer my own emails. Alex at Mashinsky.com, my last name. And uh, you can also download our app, try us out, Celsius network so at celsius network on twitter or telegram or just go to our website www.celsius.network and you can email me through there uh and again just uh, be the best you can be i mean again we're 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 giving one life and on your deathbed you're going to be asking yourself did i try everything did i give myself every chance possible and that's what you're going to be sorry about you're not going to be sorry about oh i had two more dollars or ten more dollars it's not about who accumulates the most well, it's about who gave it all. I love it. I love it. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. Thanks for having me. And just one call for action for all of your listeners, right? Bring some people into crypto. Just invite people, introduce them into it, try it out yourself. Just $10. You don't need, I'm not asking anyone to put anything in their net worth or, or their savings. And this is what's going to change the world. You want to make the world a better place? We need a system that will replace the banks, and this is the only way it's going to work. So try it out. That's it. Thank you, Alex. Take care. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening, and see you at the next episode.